Welcome listeners, but take heed. We will say whatever we need to share our knowledge, thoughts, and joy, and even things that do annoy. So join us now, but be aware, we have a tendency to swear. We'll dial it back a little bit, but frankly, we don't give a shit. Welcome to For Fox Sake, a Harry Potter book movie compare and contrast podcast. I'm Carly, and the goofy goober Gryffindor to my right is Ellen. I appreciate the alliteration, but couldn't you have gone with, like, gorgeous, graceful Gryffindor or something? Only the true Spongebob fans will know the goofy goober. Fair enough. That being said, let's fly into the Phoenix flashback. Last week, we covered the first half of Chapter 38, The Second War Begins, and a notable lack of corresponding film scenes. Harry is confused about the amount of peopling he wants to be getting on with. Umbridge is a disheveled mess, leaving us to wonder what really happened to her in the forest. After lots of apologies about his dog father, Harry goes to sit in solitude. Ron and Hermione are, of course, allowed to leave the hospital in time for the feast. Umbridge's stealthy retreat from the castle takes a peevesy turn. McGonagall is never more relatable than when she says she wishes she could chase after Pepto Bitchmall. And finally, Harry has a realization about ghosts and is disappointed to find out Nick knows nothing about death. During episode 189, Young Adults or Old Children? Our Potter pondering was, what do you think happened to Professor Umbridge when she was taken by the centaurs? And we are putting a trigger warning here in general, just in case. Hey guys, it's Jackson with my pot of pondering for this week. What do I think happened to Umbridge in the forest with the centaurs? Look, I don't think that the author was trying to imply anything like that. You know, what centaurs are known for in folklore. I honestly think that they just really scared the absolute shit out of her. And I don't know, they could have done in a lot of ways, but I don't know, something that you girls said at the last episode just made me picture that maybe they tied her to a tree or something and did a little target practice, you know, around her head. <laughs> you know, maybe a whole ring of arrows around her ears and her head. No, I just think they scared the crap out of her. I don't think they did anything what that centaurs are known to do in stories and such. It's, I don't think the author would have gone that far. I mean, we do know that she's said and done some fucked up shit, but I don't think that they would have gone that far. Hi, this is Jessica calling in my Potter Pondering for this week about what I think happened to Umbridge. First of all, I think Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Ginny had every right to laugh at her considering what she did to them. I do kind of feel bad for her in a general sense that no one, no matter how awful, deserves to be tortured and dragged through the woods, especially considering theories around what exactly happened to her. No one deserves that. However, I think Madame Pomfrey would be able to tell whether it happened based on certain healer abilities that she has. 
And I'm sure that she did give her the no dream, no nightmare potion because at minimum, being stolen away by centaurs is still traumatic whether they just tied her to a tree as a ritual sacrifice to the giant spiders or if they did actually do something a lot worse. But honestly, I think they just tried to scare her and teach her a lesson. And obviously, they were successful in that. Michaela wrote, As the old saying goes, what goes around comes around. They probably frightened her and kept firing arrows near her until she finally agreed to leave Hogwarts for good. Thank you so much for your responses. Our trivia question last week was, who is the Order member that initially speaks to the Dursleys about their treatment of Harry? Mr. Weasley pleasantly greets Vernon first, since they had met previously. Congratulations goes to Jessica Wallace. Yay! I actually completely forgot to post the episode to Facebook for Podbean since it's still not working, but she went and answered it over on Podbean, so... She gets to win for that. That was some nice proactive effort there. This is her first time ever winning, so awesome job. Congratulations. Do you think she'll be able to do it again? You never know. For now, let's dive into the second half of Chapter 38, The Second War Begins, and some basic corresponding film scenes. Chapter 38, The Second War Begins, Part 2. Harry begins to slowly and miserably walk back through the empty castle, wondering if he will ever be happy again when he sees Luna fastening a note to a board on the wall. There's no place to hide and he doesn't have the energy to anyway, so when she spots him and says hello, he asks why she isn't at the feast. She explains that she's lost most of her possessions, since people take them and hide them, and as it is the last night, she really needs them back, so she's putting up signs. She gestures to the board where she posted a sign listing her missing belongings and a plea for their return. This brings an unfamiliar feeling in Harry, so different from the anger and grief that had been consuming him, and he realizes that he feels sorry for Luna. He asks her why people hide her stuff, and she figures it's because they think she's a bit odd, mentioning that some of them call her Looney Lovegood. Harry's pity intensifies, and he offers to help her find her things, but Luna simply smiles and insists they will come back, they always do in the end. She had just hoped to pack tonight. She then asks Harry why he isn't at the feast. Harry shrugs and says he doesn't feel like it, and Luna seems to understand, telling him that Ginny told her the man the Death Eaters killed was his godfather. Harry nods and finds he doesn't mind talking with Luna about Sirius, because he knows that she can see the Thestrals too. He asks her who she knew that died, and Luna says that it was her mother, who was an extraordinary witch. She liked to experiment, and when Luna was nine, one of her mother's spells went badly wrong. Harry mumbles an apology, and Luna agrees that it was rather horrible and still makes her feel sad sometimes, but she's got dad, and it's not like she'll never see her mom again. Harry questions this, and Luna reminds him about the voices behind the veil, saying they were just lurking out of sight, but they heard them. Harry isn't quite sure what to think, since Luna believes in so many strange things, 
but he is sure he heard those voices too. He again offers to help her find her stuff, but she declines, saying she thinks she'll just go get some pudding and wait for it to all turn up, since it always does in the end. She wishes him a nice holiday, which he returns, then walks away, leaving Harry feeling like the weight in his stomach has lessened slightly. The journey home on the Hogwarts Express is eventful in several ways. Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle take the first opportunity they can to ambush Harry when he's on his way back from the toilet on the train. Unfortunately for them, they chose to attack him in front of a compartment full of DA members. Ernie McMillan, Hannah Abbott, Susan Bones, Justin Finch-Fletchley, Anthony Goldstein, and Terry Boot jinx and hex the three Slytherins to the point that they look like giant slugs in Hogwarts uniforms. Harry, Ernie, and Justin hoist them into the luggage rack and leave them to ooze as Ernie mentions how he's looking forward to seeing Malfoy's mother's face when he gets off the train. Ron joins them at this point and says he thinks Goyle's mum will be pleased since he looks loads better. He lets Harry know that the trolley is at their compartment if he wants anything, and Harry thanks the others before heading back with him. He buys a large pile of cauldron cakes and pumpkin pasties. Hermione is reading the Daily Prophet, Ginny is doing a quiz in the Quibbler, and Neville is stroking his mimulus mimbletonia, which has grown quite a bit over the school year. Harry and Ron spend most of the trip playing wizarding chess, as Hermione reads out bits of information from the Prophet, about repelling dementors, the Ministry's attempts to track down Death Eaters, and letters from people claiming they saw Lord Voldemort. She then folds up the paper and claims that it hasn't really started yet, but it won't be long. Ron gets Harry's attention and nods to the window onto the corridor. Harry sees Cho pass by, accompanied by Marietta Edgecombe, who is wearing a balaclava. When they catch each other's eyes, Cho blushes and keeps walking. Ron asks Harry what's going on with them, and when Harry says nothing, Hermione tentatively informs them that she's going out with someone else now. Harry is surprised to realize this news doesn't bother him at all, after everything that has happened recently. Ron thinks that it's for the best, since Harry wants someone a bit more cheerful, but Harry just shrugs and figures she's probably cheerful enough with someone else. Ron asks Hermione who Cho is with now, but it is Ginny who lets them know that she is with Michael Corner. Ron is confused since Ginny had been dating him, but his sister updates him letting him know that he didn't like Gryffindor beating Ravenclaw at Quidditch, so she ditched him and he ran off to comfort Cho. Ron is delighted and calls him a bit of an idiot, giving Harry a furtive look as he tells Ginny to choose someone better next time. Ginny mentions that she's chosen Dean Thomas, causing Ron to yell, What? as he upends the chessboard. The train slows as it approaches King's Cross Station, and Harry briefly entertains the idea of refusing to exit. However, when it does stop, he lifts down Hedwig's cage and prepares to drag his trunk as usual. When the ticket inspector signals that it's safe for them to go through the magical barrier, Harry is surprised to find Mad-Eye, who's wearing a bowler hat over his magical eye, Tonks, whose hair is its usual bubblegum pink, Lupin, Mrs. and Mr. Weasley, and Fred and George, who are wearing scaly green jackets, all waiting for them. Mrs. Weasley greets her children, then asks Harry how he is. 
He lies, saying he's fine, as she embraces him. When she lets him go and turns to Hermione, Lupin says hello and Harry asks him what they are all doing there. Lupin smiles and says they thought they'd have a little chat with his aunt and uncle. Harry doesn't think that's a good idea, but Moody interjects to disagree. He picks them out of the crowd and Mr. Weasley speaks up to ask if they should do it. Moody agrees and the two men lead the group across the station towards the Dursleys who look positively appalled at Harry's welcoming committee. Mr. Weasley addresses them first, introducing himself again. Vernon turns a deeper shade of puce at the sight of the man who demolished their living room a couple years previously, but otherwise says nothing. Petunia looks frightened and embarrassed, and Dudley fails at trying to make himself look small and insignificant. Arthur continues speaking, explaining that they wanted to have a few words with him about Harry, and Moody speaks up in a growl to clarify that it's about how he's treated at their place. A very indignant Vernon attempts to argue that he isn't aware that it is their business what goes on in his house. Moody cuts him off to tell him that what he isn't aware of would fill several books. Tonks joins the conversation to steer it back on track, bringing up what will happen if they find out anyone has been horrible to Harry, and Lupin insists that they will hear about it. Mr. Weasley adds on, even if they won't let him use the felly tone, and Moody finishes the thought, saying they will have to answer to them. Vernon is outraged and asks if they are threatening him. Moody is pleased that he picked up on this so quickly and confirms that they are. Vernon asks if he looks like the type that can be intimidated. Moody lifts his bowler hat to reveal his magical eye, and when Vernon jumps backward in horror, he responds that he does look like that type. He then turns to Harry and tells him to give them a shout if he needs anything, and that if they don't hear from him for three days in a row, they will send someone along. They all say bye to Harry, tell him to keep in touch, and Mrs. Weasley promises that they will have him out of there as soon as they can, as she gives him another hug. Ron and Hermione tell him that they will see him soon, and Harry nods, unable to find the words for what this means, for them to be there on his side. Instead, he smiles and waves a farewell before turning and leading the way out of the station, with his aunt, uncle, and cousin hurrying along behind him. The movie section starts out with an aerial view of the moving staircase before shifting to focus on the portraits, return to their original positions on the stone walls. Harry makes his way down the stairs and catches Filch's eye. It then cuts to Harry walking up a corridor, where Luna is hanging flyers in the hallway. He asks her why she isn't at the end of the year feast. She responds that she's missing some items and that apparently people have been hiding her things. Harry says that that's awful, but Luna assures him that it's all in good fun, but as it's the last night, she does need them back. Harry asks if she wants help, and she shakes her head and says, I'm sorry about your godfather, Harry. She squeezes his hand and Harry looks reassured. He asks again if she wants help, but she insists that it's all right saying her mom always said things we lose have a way of coming back to us in the end. The camera pans up to show a pair of multicolored converse hanging from an arch doorframe. Luna continues her thought that things come back to us even if not in the ways that we expect, then whimsically states she will go get some pudding. 
She skips off, leaving Harry staring off into space. The scene changes to show owls in cages and students chatting and walking up the gravel path. Hogsmeade Station is shown with the train blowing its whistle in the background. A porter greets the students and helps them with their luggage. The camera then pans to the carriages where Padma Patil is handing Nigel his owl. It continues over to Jenny and Seamus talking, and then finally to Harry, who is looking forlorn as he walks up behind Ron and Hermione. He tells them that he has been thinking about something Dumbledore told him. As Jenny, Neville, and Luna walk up behind the Golden Trio, Harry continues his thought that they have one thing Voldemort doesn't. Ron looks at Harry, a little surprised, as Harry says, something worth fighting for. Ron and Hermione look at each other and smile as the camera moves upward to show the top of the Hogwarts Express, ending in a shot of the castle, the lake, and the impending storm. So as you can see, there are corresponding movie sections, well, like one scene that directly corresponds to the book chapter here, but it is slightly different. And then the whole second half of this very short movie section is completely different. I don't think it was a bad add-in, though. I think it's very comforting the way that it ends. It is a good movie ending. We'll talk more about that when we get to that. It's just different. It is just different. So this half of the book chapter starts off as Harry walks away from the room he was in with Nearly Headless Nick, where he basically felt like he lost his dog father all over again. And he's just like morosely meandering through the castle, wondering if he's ever going to be happy again. I feel like that's Harry 98% of the time. Morosely meandering? Yes, morosely meandering. I'm going to give it less than that, though, because I'm going to say it's like mostly meddling and the rest of the time it's morosely meandering. Mostly meddling and morosely meandering is absolutely Harry's life. And sometimes throw in a maudlin there. You just like that word. Maudlin. Exactly. So in both the book and the movie section at this point, it picks up with him running into Luna. And in both, it's about her not having her belongings. So in the book, when Harry sees her, he considers hiding, but there's really no place to go. So she sees him and says hello. Harry then asks her why she isn't at the feast. Harry's a lot meaner to Luna in the books. Like, he was going to hide? Come on, I don't on, think dude. it was about being mean to Luna so much as it was about not wanting to deal with people. I guess that's fair. But he does seem to be a little more annoyed by Luna in the books than he is in the movies. He seems to get past that to a certain extent at this point, though. That's true. Because he asks why she's not at the feast, and she tells him that she's lost the majority of her possessions because people take them and hide them from her. But since this is the last night, she really needs them back, and that's why she's putting up these signs. And she points to one of the signs that lists all of her missing belongings and has a plea for their return. Like, this just makes me so sad for Luna. Are these other Ravenclaws that are hiding her things? Like, GTFO, y'all. I know. It's shitty. I think Harry feels similar to how we do because this brings on an emotion in him that's very unfamiliar at this point because all he's felt lately is anger and grief. And now he's feeling pity. He feels sorry for Luna. He wants to know why people hide her stuff. And she says that she thinks it's because she's a bit odd and even mentions that some people call her loony love good. 
which just makes me even more annoyed that they had Hermione call her that in the movie. They had Hermione introduce her as Looney, Luna Lovegood. That's just like showing women against women. Come on, y'all. I hate that. Anyway, this pity intensifies, and he says that he'll help her find her things, but Luna's just like, no, they'll come back. They always do in the end. She had just hoped she could get her packing done tonight. So this actually kind of happens in the movie, like you said. We start off by seeing all the lovely portraits back. Filch kind of makes an angry face at Harry when he moves down the stairs. Like, my guy, it's fine. It's like you lost the war. Figure it out. Yeah. He is just kind of an angry guy, though. But then Harry walks down the hall and he sees Luna. And he asks her what she's doing. She responds that some of her items have gone missing. And apparently other students have been hiding them. And this is my brain being like, what? Why are you doing that? That's so mean. Also, ding. That is a ding. But this drives me nuts. I put lots of question marks here because I was like, students hiding your stuff? Like your peers are hiding your things? Y'all are mean. Like Dumbledore literally says thievery is not tolerated at Hogwarts. Yeah. But nobody ever said that kids are nice. Kids are kind of assholes. But Harry's a generous kid and he offers to help her find them. She sweetly declines and then apologizes for Harry's loss. And I'm very curious because I know that Harry does not explain who Sirius is before they left. We had this conversation like two episodes ago. Yeah, like we said, I think that Ginny must have told her. I think so. I love my Ginny Luna crossover. They're besties and maybe a little more. And maybe a little bit more. Definitely could be some experimenting there. Everybody experiments at Hogwarts. (laughs) Motto. And then the nicest thing that I think happens in the entire movie series is when she quotes her mom and she says that things have a way of coming back to us in the end, even if not in a way that we choose. Which is a ding. Which is a ding. But then we see the shoes of every outcast ever, Converse, hanging from the archway. But hers are very specifically Luna. Oh, they're so Luna. I'd wear them, though. They're plaid and fun, and it's just very, you can tell, those are definitely what she had lost. At least she found one thing. And then, like we said, this is pretty much a ding. However, the book gives us more details, naturally. Because after that general conversation happens very similarly, the book takes it a bit further, and Luna specifically asks Harry why he isn't at the feast. In the movie, she already seemed to know. Sorry about your godfather. In the book, why aren't you there? Harry just says that he doesn't feel like it. And Luna seems to understand, telling him that Ginny told her the man the Death Eaters killed was his godfather. So that definitely happened in the book. And I think it makes sense that it could have happened in the movie as well, even if we didn't get to see it or hear about it. Harry realizes in this moment that he doesn't mind talking about Sirius with Luna because he knows that she can see Thestrals too and has experienced loss. And I think that gives them that kindred spirit. She gets it. That barrier that he feels between him and the rest of the world does not exist between him and Luna as much. He even feels comfortable enough asking her who she knew that died. And then this is when we learn that it was her mother. We found that out way earlier in the movie, but it's in this moment nearly at the end. 
that we finally learn this about Luna and get a little bit more of her backstory. But that story is otherwise very similar. She was an extraordinary witch who liked to experiment. And when Luna was nine, one of her mother's spells went badly wrong. Ding. Almost word for word for how they had it in the movie just a lot earlier. Harry says that he's sorry. And Luna agrees that it was rather horrible and still makes her feel sad sometimes. But she's got dad, which... Again, they said that in the movie. What they didn't say was this next line. It's not like she'll never see her mom again. My heart. We did not get this in the movie at all. And I wish that we had. They could have just given a little bit more because it answered a couple more things. And it actually makes Harry feel better because he's like, what do you mean you'll see her again? And Luna reminds him about the voices that they heard behind the veil that Luna in this moment, she is very Luna. We all know that. But I think her little oddities at this point are so therapeutic for Harry. She's dealt with her mother's death very well, I assume because she had her father and he was probably helping her. But Harry's not dealt with death at all. And Luna's here and she's very good and she's very calmly talking to him. And offering him those little pieces of, you're never not going to see them again. Right. And it's strange to hear this. He's not quite sure what to think because she believes in a lot of really strange things that may not, or may be, you never know, but may or may not be true or accurate. But he also knows that he heard those voices too. So if nothing else, this is giving him something to think about that's not just loss. And it's giving him hope. He offers again to help her find her stuff, but apparently she gave herself her own hope, or I don't know, but in the end she's just like, nah, I'm just going to give up for now. It'll all turn up. It always does in the end, which is reminiscent of how they did it in the movie, but not quite the same. A remneeding. Yes. She wishes him a nice holiday, which he says back, and then she walks away, and Harry actually does feel a little bit better. The weight in his stomach lessened. That's called anxiety, boo. That's called less anxiety, boo. (laughs) That's true. The only thing that we did get out of this conversation is the thing about things turning up in the end. It's kind of similar. Instead, the scene transitions to Hogsmeade Station where all the students are leaving and they're grabbing all their stuff off of the carts and they're animals. You see Nigel get his bird as Pavardi hands it to him, which I think is a really cute just moment between two Gryffindors. Yeah. And then we get the nice maudlin Harry, because I'm going to use my word again. <laughs> we get maudlin Harry, but he comes up behind the other two members of the Golden Trio, and he says that they have something that Voldemort did. The Bronze Trio appears behind him, and Hermione questions Harry. He says that they have something worth fighting for, And then we're all left feeling fuzzy, albeit nervous for what lies ahead as it transitions to show the castle and plays the slash happy music. (laughs) (laughs) It really is a good ending for a movie. Honestly, it probably could have been written well as a good ending for a book. It is just very different from the way that it did end in the book. It is true. They never show the train journey home in the movies, which is disappointing to me. And this is all about the journey home. That's what we got. We got the journey home and then the arrival at King's Cross Station. And that's where every single book basically ends. Yeah. 
him going back to the Dursleys, which is how it should end in the movies too. But, you know, they always have to end with a nice big shot of the castle to make you feel fuzzy and sad. They also usually end on a really good conclusion quote. Like, we have something worth fighting for. And the book does that in its own way. It just takes place at King's Cross. But like I said, we get to see the journey home. It is actually pretty eventful for multiple reasons. The first one being that Nazi von Douchebag II and his cronies, Crabbe and Goyle, decide to take the first opportunity where they aren't being properly supervised to ambush Harry. However, not being from Ravenclaw themselves, they chose the moment that Harry is coming back from the toilet on the train, and they took up position right outside of the compartment that was full of DA members. So you've got Ernie McMillan, Hannah, Susan... Mm -hmm. Justin Vince Fletchley, Anthony Goldstein, and Terry Boots pop out from their compartment and just jinx and hex the shit out of these three Slytherins. Also, half of these people in this cart are Ravenclaws and the other half are Hufflepuff. Maybe y'all don't need to fuck around. Oh, no. They totally fucked around and found To the point that they all ended up looking like giant slugs stuffed in Hogwarts uniforms. And I... I'm definitely a little bitter that this was not an image we got to see come to life. I also love their solution to what to do with these giant slugs wearing Hogwarts uniforms. Harry, Ernie, and Justin all just lift them up and shove them into the luggage rack and leave them there to ooze. Yuck. <laughs> all while Ernie says that he's really looking forward to seeing the look on Nazi von Duchette's face. That could work. <laughs> I just made that one up. We've never really discussed that before. The Duchess of Douchebag. Something. Nazi von Duchette. I don't know. But he wants to see the look on her face when Malfoy gets off the train. And at this point, Ron finds and he takes one look at them and says that Goyle's mum will be pleased since he looks loads better. Burn. That's not really nice because the guy that played Goyle is actually pretty attractive. Oh, uh, yeah, and he only got more so as he got older. Correct. He had a nice glow up there. Mm-hmm. Not quite neveling. Do we call it neveling or do we call it longbottoming or do we call it Matthewing or do we call it... I don't know. I just like the idea of saying he neveled up. I'm here for neveled up. Because yeah. <laughs> Neville does have a glow up in the book. too. He does. Ron also lets Harry know that the food trolleys at their compartment so if he wants anything he's got to get back there now and Harry thanks the others for saving him and then goes back with Ron where he buys a very large pile of cauldron cakes and pumpkin pasties do they serve real food on this cart because y'all no it is absolutely let's sugar the shit up out of these kids and then send them back with their parents and I'm here for it stop being grandparents <laughs> In the compartment, Hermione is reading another copy of the Daily Prophet. Ginny's doing a quiz in the Quibbler, which I love that she started reading the Quibbler. What boy do you fancy? And Neville is stroking his Mimulus Mimbletonia, which has gotten bigger throughout the school year. I feel like that's a euphemism. Awkward. So his Mimulus Mimbletonia neveled up, too? Whoo! <laughs> So then for the rest of the trip, Harry and Ron pretty much spend it playing wizarding chess 
as Hermione just reads them bits and pieces from the prophet, stuff about repelling dementors and the ministry's attempts to track down the murder munchers, and then letters that people sent in claiming they saw Lord Voldemort, which I feel like would have to be fantastic to a certain extent. I saw him sucking down a chili dog at the 7-Eleven. Exactly. She then folds up the paper and makes the comment that it hasn't really started yet, but it's about to. This is like the calm before the storm. Hagrid has a similar line in the movie. He says something very, very similar to that. At this point, Cho-Ching! Which is more of a Cho-Ching now. It doesn't elicit the same excitement. No choner boner here. No choner boners. And she walks past their compartment. She's with Marriott Edgecombe, who's basically covering her face with a balaclava because still has the angry purple marks that say sneak. But Ron points her out to Harry, and they catch each other's eye and show blushes and, like, hurries off. And Ron wants to know what's going on with them. When Harry says nothing, Hermione's just like, um, I heard that she's going out with someone new now. The whole thing with her and Harry blows my mind because he refers to her in the seventh book as his ex-girlfriend. Y'all went on one date and you kissed once. You are not boyfriend and girlfriend. Calm down. They're also 15 and 16. But I... At 15, 16, I wouldn't have classified somebody that I went on one date with and kissed once as my boyfriend or my girlfriend. My ex person interest? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could have been like his, I don't know. We don't know how much it. time they actually hung out at Hogwarts in between things and stuff. I guess that's also fair. But this part also makes me sad because Marietta, it's not... Mm, Hermione's Slytherinness. I didn't get to talk to you guys about this because I wasn't on the podcast at that point. But the Marietta thing is so upsetting to me because she has that through the next year. Harry says that he sees her in the corridor on the train in the next year and she still has it on her face. Yeah. I know Hermione's good at magic, but baby, can't you get it off her? Because she was Veritaserumed. She wasn't, not in the books. There was no Veritaserum in the book. Snape gave her fake oh, Veritaserum. She true. chose to betray them. I don't think she would have gotten those scars. But she's also scared. Then she shouldn't have joined the group. She shouldn't have. I do definitely agree with that. She shouldn't have gone with Cho if she didn't want to. And honestly, if your friend's doing something you don't want to do, you don't have to do it. Same old saying. If your no friends are jumping pressure. off the bridge. Yep. Do I think that she deserved to be permanently disfigured? Probably not. No. I hope that it is something that over time as she proves to be more loyal that maybe it fades more and more. Does she come back for the Battle of Hogwarts? Because if she does, I feel like it would go away for that. I don't think she does. Probs not. Oh, well. But anyway, Harry has now learned that she's seeing someone new via Hermione and is kind of surprised to realize that This doesn't upset him in the least, probably partially because everything else that has happened recently has been a much bigger deal than that. But in general, he's just like, eh, I'm over it. Yeah, I think he kind of realized they weren't compatible. It was just like a crush, and then they went on a date, and they were like, maybe not. Right? 
And Ron also thinks it's for the best, saying that Harry wants somebody a bit more cheerful. And Harry's even like, I'm sure she's perfectly cheerful with someone else. That is really nice that Harry is not being like, she's annoying and whiny and cries all the time. I think aside from them not being compatible, I think part of the issue is he would be a constant reminder of what she lost. And she's a constant reminder of what Harry had to see. Right. So they weren't healthy for each other, for sure. Ron asks Hermione who Cho is dating now, but it's actually Ginny who has this answer because she is now dating Ginny's ex-boyfriend, Michael Corner, which Ron's like, what the fuck? And Ginny's just like, nah, dude. He got so upset when Gryffindor beat Ravenclaw in Quidditch that I didn't like him sulking and I ditched him. He ran off to comfort Cho. Get it, girl. I love Jenny so much. Ron is pretty pleased with this, too, because he thinks Michael Corner was a bit of an idiot. And then he gives Harry a very furtive look as he tells Ginny that she should choose someone better next time. Like, all he was missing was, <coughs> Harry, <coughs> choose someone better, <coughs> my best friend. But he also doesn't like the fact that Harry is... I think it's slightly different in practice than it is in concept. Yeah, it's like, on paper, this looks good, but maybe seeing it is a little stressful for me. There is also definitely some jealousy arising, I'm sure. Well, that'll go away after he's snogged to death next year. I can't wait to talk about that. So Cho Choo Choo chose Michael Corner? Uh, apparently. And Jenny Cho Cho chose Dean Thomas, which... Good choice, boo. Good choice. Not in Ron's mind. He literally, I imagine he jumps up and yells, what? Because it causes the entire chessboard to flip over. And I don't know if those player pieces remember where they were in a game or if that was just end of that game. Then the train starts to slow down because it's getting closer to King's Cross Station. And Harry has this thought where he's just like, what if I just stay here? What if I just absolutely refuse to get off of the train and I just live here until it goes back to Hogwarts on September 1st? But then when it does actually stop, he stands up and gets Hedwig's cage and grabs his trunk so he can drag it out as usual. And this is something that I never really considered before, but they mention it here that they were waiting for a ticket inspector to signal that it's safe for them to go through the magical barrier. And I never really thought about appearing from the other side because there'd be no sign of a train and hundreds of kids would just, like, appear. Well, I also think about if they run through and there's no check, they might just run out and, like, topple onto somebody. Right, what if somebody leaves something in front of it or there are people standing there or something like maybe it has its own muggle repelling thing so they don't stand too close to it or something that would be a very good idea but anyway they go through the barrier and are surprised to be greeted by Mad-Eye Moody who's wearing a bowler hat at an angle so it covers his electric blue magical eye we also have Tonks whose hair is its usual shade of bubblegum pink Lupin, who just looks like Remus, Mr. and Mrs. Weasley, who I'm sure also look normal, and Fred and George, who are described as wearing these green scaly jackets. 
Their fashion is so wonderfully described in this whole series. Every time they're wearing something, it's so fun. Ron does ask them what they're wearing, and we learn that it is dragon skin jackets. So, oh, that's fun. Poor dragons. I feel like that'd be good armor, too, though. In D&D, dragon scale armor is really good. Right? Anyway, Mrs. Weasley greets all of her children and gives Harry a hug and asks how he is. Naturally, he's in the lie mode and he says he's fine. She's giving him a hug. And this is when he sees Ron asking the twins about their jackets over her shoulder. Then when she lets him go and turns to Hermione to greet her, Lupin takes over saying hi to Harry. And Harry's like, what are you all doing here? Harry's a little dim sometimes. Not a Ravenclaw. But Remus just smiles and says that they're there so they can have a little chat with his aunt and uncle about how they treat him. And Harry's like, I don't know that that's a good idea. But Moody's like, oh, no, it's a good idea. That'll be them over there, right? And he points out to two people. I'm positive that he was able to pick them out based on the expressions on their face because they are looking at Harry and his welcoming committee in absolute disgust essentially it's like oh god what is happening because that is an eclectic group of people right there mr weasley's like yep all right should we do it and moody agrees so they lead the way they lead the entire group of people across the station towards the dursleys who are like fuck me what is about to happen petunia's looking around like oh my god Oh, my God, we can't be seen with this lot. And Mr. Weasley addresses them first, introducing himself again since they'd already met. Which was our trivia question. Sure was. I love the fact that Mr. Weasley says, you might remember me because he literally destroyed Uncle Vernon's living room a few years back. But he also fixed it. He did. That's not something you're likely to forget, though. I'm thinking about this whole welcoming committee thing, and I'm thinking how many times Mrs. Weasley has wanted to do this. Oh, yeah. And it is very satisfying, which does make me sad that we didn't get to see it. Because you've got Vernon, who basically turns the deepest shade of puce that he possibly could. That's such a gross color. I don't know if it's a gross color, but it's definitely a gross word. Sounds like puke. It does. The color itself is, like, in the purple family. It's really not a bad color. I don't particularly enjoy puce, but I think it's because my grandma had, like, puce curtains and a puce couch, and it was very pukey. It is an awful word, though. Tis. Petunia, like I said, looks embarrassed. Definitely a little scared, too. And then you've got Dudley, who's trying and failing at making himself look small and insignificant because he's not. But Arthur just continues talking like none of that is going on, explaining that they wanted to have a few words with him about Harry. And Moody's just like, specifically how he's treated at your place. Which makes Vernon say something sassy along the lines of, I wasn't aware that it was any of your business what goes on in my house. While that may be semi-true... How you treat a child that is important to them in your house, that does affect them. What Moody actually says is, what you aren't aware of would fill several books. 
and sassy moody. But I feel like you could literally apply that to anybody. 90% of the people in this book, yes, you can give that to them. No, anybody in the entire world. There are bound to be several books full of things that I just don't know. Well, we'll start with the Library of Alexandria for one. Yes. (laughs) But that's not really the point. The point is... The satchels of assholes are getting ganged up on, and it is beautiful because now we have Tonks joining in this conversation, mostly trying to steer it back on track of what will happen if anybody is horrible to Harry. And then there's a little bit of information in here about how Petunia literally has to close her eyes because she can't stand the sight of Tonks's pink hair. Well, that's the most conservative thing I've ever heard. Right? Calm down. <laughs> and then Lupin speaks up to also say that they absolutely will find out about it. Because Tonks is just like, this is what's going to happen if we find out anyone has been horrible to Harry. And Lupin's just like, and we will find out. And then Mr. Weasley says, yeah, even if it's something simple, like you won't let him use the felly tone. He says it with such confidence, such and I confidence. love it. And Hermione's just like, telephone. It's a telephone, Mr. Weasley. Telephone. Doesn't really say it out loud for anybody else to hear. Just can't not correct him. (laughs) But Moody then finishes this whole line of thinking that they're on saying they will have to answer to them, meaning all of these Aurors and members of the Order. The bag of assholes is pissed and wants to know if they're threatening him. And Moody's just like, yeah. That's exactly what we're doing. He's, like, thrilled that he picked up on it that fast. You might be a smart muggle. Right? What? Yeah, absolutely good. I'm so glad we can cut to the chase here. And Bag of Assholes wants to know if he looks like the type who can be intimidated. The answer is, duh. Uh, yeah. Especially when Moody lifts his bowler hat off of his eye, his magical, freaky-looking eye. And causes him to jump backwards in absolute horror. He just says, yeah, yeah, I think you do look like that type. And then turns to Harry and says, give us a shout if you need anything. If we don't hear from you for three days in a row, we're going to send somebody along to check on you. And he doesn't really say that for Harry's benefit. That is 100% for the Satchel of Assholes. That should have been going on a long time ago, though. I think it took a while for them to really realize how bad it was. I mean, it's not up to the order to take care of him, and maybe the Weasleys weren't 100%, but I think, honestly, in the second one, when they come and they say there were bars on Harry's window, if I was Mrs. Weasley, I would have stepped in and done that. If I don't hear from you three days in a row, we're going to have a problem. Yeah, I don't know if they had the manpower to handle that before, because it did get a little bit better. But now that they have the order assembled, order assembled, they can actually step in a little bit easier. Also, it did get a little bit better for Harry when they thought he had a dangerous murderer for a dog father. Shouldn't have to threaten somebody to get them to take care of a child. You shouldn't, but they are satchels of assholes. It'd be like that. Anyway, everyone says bye to Harry, says they'll keep in touch. Mrs. Weasley flat out says, we are going to get you out of there ASAP, gives him another hug. Mama Weasley, love her so much. And then Ron and Hermione say, we will see you soon, we promise. 
And Harry just nods because he doesn't have the words for this. But this isn't like a, I don't want to talk. This is like, I don't know how to describe how much this means to me to have all of you on my side. So he just smiles and waves and then turns and starts walking out of the station, not even saying a word to his aunt, uncle, and cousin. He just turns and walks out and they have to follow after him. And that is where the book ends. So it still has that same feel-good moment where Harry realizes just how many people he has on his side and knows that he's not going to have to put up with the satchels of assholes for a long time this summer. But it's not the same, like, almost mic drop end to the movie, the way that the movie had that line. Something worth fighting for. Yeah, it's definitely kind of a powerful thought as opposed to an introspective feeling of happiness. They end in the same tone, but in different ways, like you're saying. Like it's one ends and you got that, ah. Yeah. And then the other one ends and you're like, oh, yeah. Oh. Which is actually what I think should be our Potter pondering. Yes. Again, we're in this moment where we don't have a lot to talk about actor-wise. We're at the end of the movie. So it's the end much... of the movie. We didn't have anybody new because this was super abbreviated. But in general, I do just want to say that the casting was phenomenal. I know that not everybody looked like how we wanted them to or expected them to. But... They did such a good job bringing characters to life. I just really wish they had given them more to do once they were alive. Like, you know, anything else that happened in the books? More Dean Thomas, please. How about a little bit of Peeves? To be fair, they recorded all of Peeves for the first one. <laughs> and then edited him out. Indeed. But we could move on to our Potter pondering, which is, do you prefer Harry saying something worth fighting for from the movie or the scene with Mad-Eye threatening Vernon with his magical eye from the book? Find the post on our Facebook page and share your thoughts. Or call us at 216-526-6792 and leave your response as a voicemail. Make sure you start off telling us your name and then go into your answer. Don't forget, you can also stitch your response on TikTok. We really look forward to reading, hearing, and seeing them. We do not have a sorting hat story this week either, but we do have a wizarding word. And it is this amazing thing that Warner Brothers in the wizarding world is presenting called Back to Hogwarts. They're doing this in partnership with Cinemark where they're going to be re-releasing Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1 and Part 2, like I said, only at Cinemark between September 1st and September 7th. So the first week of September, right in line with the usual return to Hogwarts in the series. And if you go to Cinemark.com, to the Relive Magical Memories, it's called Back to Hogwarts, you can find it there. And get your tickets. I can actually share this link as well. I definitely kind of want to go and see it. 
we should definitely go together and dress up. Absolutely. That'd be fun. This week's trivia question is, what does the UK version refer to a punching bag as? The first one who responds with a correct answer and the code word hashtag both English will get a sticker. Another way to get a sticker is to rate and review us through iTunes. If you don't have an Apple account, then you can write us a recommendation on our Facebook page. Make sure to email us at forfoxsakepodcast at gmail.com to let us know you did, and we'll get back to you to figure out which sticker you want and where to send it. Don't forget to find us and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, and TikTok at foxsakepod. Following us on Podbean at foxsakepod.podbean.com will get you the episode as early as possible and give you a leg up in answering the trivia question. You can also go to our website at forfoxsakepodcast.com to check out our For Fox Sake and Harry Potter related merchandise for sale. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we post our weekly podcast episodes, cooking show episodes, vlogs, bloopers, and other random videos. We have a bit of a backlog on episodes. I did make some progress, and I'm hoping to get the rest up this summer. If you would like to support us as a patron, you can sign up on patreon.com slash foxsakepod. $2 and up a month will get you some awesome perks like for Fox Sake swag, access to our Discord channel, chats, virtual hangouts, and more. And join us next week when we talk about the first part of the differences between the UK and US versions of the book and some of our favorite moments discussing Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Thanks for listening. Hope you hear us again. I'm Carly. I'm Ellen. And we are... For For Fox Fox Sake. Sake.